Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. We feel that the fact that there are still 1.2 billion people living in absolute poverty, which is less than $1.25 a day, is a stain on our collective conscience. A stain. A stain. And, you know, over the past 25 years, uh, we've made a lot of progress. Uh, We've gone from 43% of the people living in absolute poverty to 21% today. But most of that was because China grew so rapidly. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Well, that was Jim Kong Jim, World Bank president back in 2013, when they had the ambitious goal of ending world poverty by 2030. We are still waiting on that one. So how do we fix it? Because it's only got worse with the pandemic, then with a much higher US dollar pushing up debt for a lot of these nations. Plus, do we care as much anymore? Are we all just too selfish until we see floods of people escaping extreme poverty and washing up on our shores? Then maybe we start to care. So how do we fix world poverty? That's all. We'll look at that this week on the Debunking Economics Podcast with me and Steve Keen. Welcome along. So a week or two back in the UK, Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, warned the UK to prepare itself for a hurricane of mass migration, a hurricane of nasty foreign people who don't integrate and come to Britain for this better standard of living. They're not getting a home. She said, today, the option of moving from a poorer country to a richer one is not just a dream for billions of people. It's an entirely realistic proposition. The Human Rights Act, which supports people's claims for asylum, should be renamed the Criminal Rights Act. This is true stuff. This is the way British politics has gone. Because it provides the business case for people traffickers, basically, is what she's saying. So there were some of the uh, the milder elements of her tirade. But she is uh, right about migration, of course. Do wealthy countries face ever-rising numbers of migrants from overseas, either because of war or poverty or climate change? Mind you, Steve, I mean, if you lived in a uh, a poor country, you'd have to wonder why Britain, (laughs) because (laughs) if you looked at the numbers in terms of GDP per capita based on purchasing power parity, and we'll talk about that in a second, in Singapore, each person is generating 157,000 international dollars, that's how we compare countries, compared to just 80,000 in the US, 56,000 in the UK, so supposedly Singapore is three times as wealthy, uh, and Britain falls below the European Union average of 57,000, so so I wonder why people are looking at the UK, apart from the fact that maybe they've learned English and we all speak English. But that's I mean, probably... Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that's the main reason, probably, isn't it? But I mean, well, uh, but yeah. but I mean, most people actually don't come to the UK, of course. But I mean, uh, I hate to, you know, to, to side with Sheila Braverman on anything at all. 
But it is a point, isn't it? If we have increasing disparity on the planet, you know, climate change aside, we are going to see big movements of people. Well, yeah, we're going to see them. And climate change is going to be the major reason why. And that's one of the many reasons reasons why, in fact, this is basically colonialism coming back to bite the UK. And it hardly deserves to be bitten. So let's look at the numbers then. First of all, um, purchasing power parity. That's uh, why these numbers got transferred into international dollars. So how is that worked out? And is it a useful way of really measuring? I mean, no numbers are, you know, infallible, are they? But in terms of looking at the wealth of, of, of different countries, is it a, a useful measure? Oh, it's reasonable, but it's, it's it's very disordered at the same time. So you're trying to basically say not just what you know your uh, currency is worth in terms of American dollars, but given what it costs to buy something in American dollars, uh, what does it cost in your country? And you then make that adjustment to the overall level of prices. And uh, it, it's 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 you know it's it's useful, but it's got a lot of it can't help but distort uh, the picture as well. So. I tend, and it's it's very rarely collected as well in terms of you don't get the same frequency for that that you get for basic exchange rates, yeah. obviously. It can, of course, show that there are massive divides in, I mean, if you're comparing developed countries, it's perhaps less useful. Uh, and the comparison with some countries, it just shows there's a massive gap. So you don't really care what the multitude is. So, for example, if we compare the UK at 56,000 per capita, Burundi in Africa, it's got a GDP per capita of uh, just... 891 of those international dollars. But then you look at what it can buy and it's much more. I mean, I've got a very trivial example of that living here in Hungary now, uh, that what used to cost me five euro in uh, Amsterdam cost me two euro 50 here. And therefore you've got to, you know, they've effectively double the recorded incomes in Hungary to get a, a proper comparison of the income in the two countries. Right. But I mean, that's what purchasing power parity is supposed to sort out, isn't that's it? That's what it does. Yeah. It's, but, but, but it's got, it, you know, it, it, nothing, it, the more you uh, process numbers, the more you end up mangling them yeah, as well. Yeah, of course. So, yeah. But I mean, yeah, just the, yeah. the massive divide, $891 per capita versus 56,000. So the UK is 63 times richer than Burundi. Singapore mm. is 120 times richer on that basis. I mean, you know, however you divide the numbers, even if they're 50% out, that's a massive gap. And it didn't used to be as wide as that. That's the thing, isn't it? The rich-poor gap around the world, if you go back to the late 1700s, supposedly Western Europe and Africa, the, the divide was only two and a half times. So, of course... Yeah, well, I, I think that's before the Africans were introduced to European hospitality. And, and this is the point that people could tend to forget. The reason poor countries, overwhelming reason why poor countries are poor is because they're smashed during the colonial period by their occupier, uh, with, with the, some of the worst examples occurring in, uh, in Africa and actually Belgium probably taking first prize, what it did to the Congo. So they basically destroyed the economies of those countries. And that's fundamentally, when, you, you know, when somebody destroys everything you've got, it takes a while to catch up afterwards. Yeah, particularly if they're trying to stop that happening. So, yeah, so we, pl exactly. so we plundered yeah. those countries for the, for the resources and other riches. And, and, and basically now they're trying to play catch up is, is what but, you're saying. Yeah, but the, the people often don't realize how extreme this is and how much economic ideology was caught up in it as well. Um, so like my favorite example – 
it's just one of the books which I mean I I knew a fair bit of this anyway because I was always a relatively non-orthodox student and reader. But the best profile I've seen of what Europe Europe did to Asia uh, is a book by by a great old historian called D. G. E. Hall, three initials, uh, D. G. E. Hall, called The History of South Asia. And you look through it, and it's it's so meticulously documented that you just if you walk away from that and don't think that colonialism caused the current, was by far the major cause of the current uh, divide, then, you know, you haven't got a brain. Uh, but he gave the example of, of India, and this is me, I'm going back 40, 50 years in my reading, so I might get some of the details wrong. But when uh, England, before England invaded India with the East, East India Company, uh, India was 70% rural and 30% urban. And the main industry, one of the major industries in the urban area was textiles. And Indian textiles were far higher quality than English textiles and, you know, cheaper to make as well. Um, then you had, at that point, the English attitude, because they were then politically controlled uh, India through the East India Company, they banned exports of textiles from India to England. Then you had, and this is the other point where you get major uh, divergences coming up in economies. Of course, the steam engine was perfected, not invented. It possibly was invented, but the, the James wasn't an invention of a steam engine. It was perfection of it by uh, improving the uh, energy extraction capability of it initially for coal mines. But then, of course, you attach a, a steam engine to a machine which you know, turns 20 or 30 spindles when a human can only turn one, uh, you got an incredible technological advantage uh, for England out of in the textile. They weren't as good as the Indian textile, the damn site cheaper. So uh, that was happened to coincide with the opening up of free trade. And then with the opening up of free trade, the urban and rural balance in India was inverted. You went from 70% urban, 30% rural to 30% urban, 70% rural, and something of the order of 100 million people. And again, I'm not sure of that particular figure, but I'm sure of the 70-30 one from DGE Hall, uh, being starved to death. So you had a collapse of their in- industrial structure. And uh, as much as people talk about free trade these days, the Indian England, England wasn't about to accept it until they could dominate, as they did, of course, global industry with uh, industrialised textiles. So isn't it the, 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 the fundamental problem today that the poor countries are poor because people just aren't paid very much? Now, that sounds like completely obvious, doesn't it? But if you look at, uh, you know, let's go back to Burundi as an example, about 30% of their or more actually of their exports is tea and coffee. Uh, so they are paying themselves basically slave wages or we are paying them slave wages. However, I'm almost certainly multinationals involved in all of this yep. uh, for us to enjoy our five pound cups of coffee in a cafe in London. Uh, and, uh, you know, the I mean, if everyone in Burundi was paid, I don't know, 60 times more, for example, uh, then it would push up the price. And every other uh, country that was making coffee was to do the same thing in the same way that, you know, we've got, a, uh, you know, the oil producing nations all banding together to keep the price of oil high. If we did the same for coffee, I don't think we'd stop drinking coffee. And in fact, that five pounds might cost six pounds instead of five pounds, because most of it obviously is not the, the cost of the coffee itself. Um, and the country would be richer. I mean, it seems like a simple solution. Just pay everyone more. You have a you have more of a, a, a you know more of a domestic economy building up as a, as a result of that. I mean, just how fundamental is this? Just this issue of cheap labour being the intrinsic problem in these countries. It isn't just cheap labour. It's also the lack of the industrial 
uh, you know, infrastructure that you have to employ your cheap labor in. And this is why China was so successful. I mean, probably the, the most dramatic case uh, of, of, a, of a country transforming itself from poverty to comparative wealth uh, was China. And the reason it did it was uh, the, the way that it did it. And I, I was, I think I've mentioned a few times that I was lucky enough to go to the Shenzhen Free Trade Zone when it was still being constructed uh, back in 91, 80, 81, 82. And the attitude of the, of the Chinese that the, the policy they took was they were going to let American industry come in and exploit cheap labor. They themselves were exploiting a loophole in the uh, trade agreement that, that the America had, which benefited third world countries. And of course, at the time, China qualified uh, that if you re-export it, if you sent something off for reworking and then imported it back in from a third world country, you didn't have to pay the tariff on it. So there was no tariffs involved in a multinational relocating production to China. And of course, they were going from paying, you know, of the order of, I'm going to use a, just a rough name, of the order of $10 an hour to 50 cents an hour for the labor. Plus also there were, uh, you know, they got a whole lot of breaks in terms of environmental standards and so on. And, but they, they insisted that that, um, deal had to include a Chinese national or Chinese company uh, becoming a 50% owner of the company after five years with zero capital up front. And that gives you an idea of just how gigantic the advantage was. And American capitalists were ha- happy to hand over half the ownership of a company yeah. to get cheaper wages. That's how big the advantage was. And yet, now, so, chi- so China now, of course, they're trying to break away from that. They're trying to give themselves a decent wage. So the so again, well, they've really done that. Yeah. Well, I mean, yes, but their GDP per capita is less than of those going back to those international dollars, twenty four thousand. So it's still half what it is in in the UK. Now, obviously, it's a much bigger country, and there's a much greater variety. So there's still uh, people steeped in poverty. So that brings that number down but i mean the aim now within china is to grow its own domestic economy so presumably they want to see that number double so that they aren't you know they'll still obviously be a a net exporter but they want to see that you know that wealth grow domestically as well so they are buying more goods themselves Will they get there, and are they the roadmap for poor well, countries? Well, it's, it's, it's got, to go, got to go back to why, why they're getting there, and that is because they've industrialised, and with industrialisation, uh, you use more energy. And the, the fundamental source of that is just huge discrepancy in wealth is the amount of energy per capita. And, uh, like, uh, again, back to China when I was there in 81, 82, we were taken to see a light bulb factory. And the light bulbs were, you know, of course, classic incandescent. That was the only technology back then. But they were being hand-woven. Uh, and hand hand assembled. Um, now, of course, you get a machine to do it, and once you get the machine to replicate the movements of the human that put things together, you can increase the speed of fact by a ten by a factor of a hundred if you can speed up the uh, if you can increase the amount of energy being throughput through the machine. So, and then with that, you start developing better technology to do the same thing, uh, more rapidly, higher quality, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and you get industrialization because your capacity to process energy rises dramatically, and if you go to a third world, I mean, I've, I correspond with a person regularly in uh, in uh, not, not Nigeria, pardon me, I've got the actual Uganda, in Uganda, and in her uh, village, there is no electric power, period. Okay, uh, and that's the common situation. This is a she's actually a nun running a uh, a, a training uh, service for rural rural women, and you know I get all the stories about the situation they're in all the time, and it is you know, literally you simply don't have uh, the energy 
uh, input in the first place. And with that, you're, therefore, you're only doing manual labor to do various productive tasks. So an amazing, my, my wife is a great YouTube watcher. And we watched one yesterday of uh, people, and I've forgotten which hunt it was in Africa, making motor- motorcycles out of wood. Uh, incredible ingenuity. Um, but, you know, that, that's rather different to going down the street and buying yourself a Kawasaki. So it's the energy capacity. And if, if you had to destroy it 200 years ago, you've got a lot of catching up to do. Right. So that is the so if the West was looking for what it could do to help developing nations, then helping to build an energy infrastructure is probably the best thing they could do. Uh, so long as yeah. they don't attach debt to it. And I know what you're going to say. Well, we don't want to use more energy on the planet because, you know, because we're we're facing this this problem with climate change. But but if we did it in a sustainable way, I guess. But we're not yeah. going to do it because we want to keep ahead. That's and, and and a large part of it is reinvestment. This is the other point which I just differ with most economists on. They're obsessed about trade and specialization and comparative advantage. That is making a mockery of what capital machinery actually is. And I, I find this, it's, it's so amusing when I look back and look at the history of economic thought on these issues, because the definition that economists happily use is taken from Lionel Robbins in 1933, I think it was, in, in, right in the depth of the Great Depression. He defined economics as the science which is this, it was really wrong from the second word, the science of, of the allocation of scarce resources, of, of allocation, satisfaction of unlimited wants by scarce resources, as far as the textbooks normally quote, next four words, which have alternative uses. Now, I'm still waiting for a neoclassical economist to explain to me the alternative uses of a blast furnace. Okay? Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so you, you, you have to have specialised technology for all this, and but it, could and that, could reinvest, that, but if, reinvestment I mean, that's not, creates but, it. <laughs> reinvestment, not specialization, is what matters. Right, but I mean, you can't do any of that if you don't have power. I mean, if yeah, just you've got to have the, the power first of all. Yeah, getting, yeah. So I'm just, you know, and, and maybe the ingenuity comes from that. So, Hadju Chang, uh, I mean, you mentioned his book, Twenty Three Things They Don't Tell You About Capitalism. He's written a number of books. Actually, I'm becoming a big fan of his. He's, if you're, we should get him on the show one day. We should get him on the show if he'd come on. That would be fantastic because he's he a would, great he talker would, yeah. as well. Yeah, and um, yeah, so. He, one of the things he talks about is, you know, this myth that people in poor countries just aren't entrepreneurial. Uh, because oh, you know, again, I, just watching that guy make a make a motorbike out of wood. Exactly, that's what made me think of that. I mean, <laughs> yeah. And he goes, you know, if you go to poor countries, people have to be entrepreneurial to survive. You know, whatever they're doing, whether it's hawking things to tourists or shining shoes, uh, you know, they're not waiting for a welfare payment like people in the West are um, because they don't exist. Uh, and he makes the point, whereas most people in, in you know wealthy countries work for companies implementing someone else's entrepreneurial vision. So and often they're bored shitless doing it too. Exactly. I mean, and, and, it, and it's a bullshit job, as we know, you know, for yeah. creating something that's not actually creating anything at all. Yeah, so, so you can't bring it back to the people. You bring it back to the machinery and the energy. Right. So if you gave energy to these countries, you know, if that's the stumbling block, then maybe that entrepreneurship, if you gave that person making that, uh, you know, that wooden uh, motorcycle, uh, the, the energy and the tools and the resources to, to be able to make <laughs> something out of, you know, something more sustainable, uh, then you might have the beginning of an industry there. Well, it's yeah, but it, it, that's the thing. It's building up your your capital, uh, your capital stock, your infrastructure, your energy, and and that the, the difficulty for so many countries is that to do that they they don't have the original know how into how to make various machines. They've got to pay for the machines with foreign exchange. They end up exporting cheap products to get there. They can get in a, as they're trying to you know buy expensive manufactured goods while exporting cheap 
uh, agricultural goods, then they get caught in a trap and they end up in the hands of the IMF, which is run by neoclassical economists. And once they've got their fingers into you, there's no hope. Right. Well, look, we'll look at that in just a second when we come back. And also just how many countries, wealthy countries, got to where they are uh, through protectionism. I know we've uh, we've covered that off a, a few times on this podcast, but we'll revisit it in just a second. It's the Debunking Economics podcast. It's me and Steve back in a moment. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. So, Steve, uh, yeah, I mentioned just before the break, Haju Chang and uh, some of the examples he gives in in this space. And one of my favourites was he was talking about his uh, during a lecture, he was talking about his six-year-old son and how he could send his six-year-old son out to work because, you know, the benefit of that is he wouldn't have to pay his six-year-old son. You know, he'd be uh, able to pay him uh, or, you know, pay for his lodgings. Uh, he would force his six-year-old son to become more productive. You know, a double win, basically. It's costing him less, uh, and his son is becoming a more productive member of society at six. But he said instead, he protects his son. He, you know, he gives him shelter, gives him education, uh, in the hope that he's going to have a, a more successful life. He's going to get educated. He's going to get a better job. Uh, whereas, you know, instead of being, you know, at six shining shoes or chimney sweep, he could become a doctor or, uh, a, a, you know, an academic or an industry leader. Uh, and, you know, we don't do that. And yet we have a problem when governments try and do the same. So governments protect industries. Britain and the US did that. Uh, Japan has done that. Most successful nations have grown through protectionism. And yet his point, when it comes to poor nations, we're saying, no, you should send your kids out at six. And that's the, that, that is the issue of the way neoclassical economic leads them astray. The whole focus on specialization rather than reinvestment. And and the, this, this sacrifice in the altar of, of free trade. And I can actually, like, I can't give the name, but I was once visited by an ex-member of the IMF uh, who showed me the spreadsheet that they took uh, around countries in Africa uh, to get them to adjust their domestic policies to suit whatever program the IMF had them locked into. And he was just, he'd done it for, for decades and he was embarrassed when he looked back on the damage that he'd done because he said it didn't matter what the actual situation of the economy was. It didn't matter what their needs were. They simply had to get this spreadsheet filled out, get the numbers for it, and adjust the policies until they suited the spreadsheet. And he said, we basically destroyed, uh, you know, in the... the development programs of those countries and we certainly wouldn't let them protect their industries yeah that's it isn't it part of the if you if you need money from the international monetary fund we want free trade as a, as yeah. a consequence of it 
Yeah. And yet, if they were given that ability to protect industries, I mean, you're saying, you know, they, uh, you shouldn't be focusing on one industry, but if you're a small country, you almost have to specialise, don't you, in the same way that Japan specialised in cars a great deal? Well, I mean, yeah, again, you, you look at it, it, what often happens, and this is where it's important to think outside, again, the neoclassical uh, straitjacket, is that there's not just cars, there's all sorts of different cars, there's motorbikes as well, and there weren't motorbikes, and, and you, you think like the scooter being invented and so on. So what often happened to enable development like that to happen was that a country is too poor to pay for cars and the bicycles weren't good enough. So I think it was Mr. Honda who was the first person in Japan to uh, fit a, 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 a four-stroke motor or two-stroke motor, I think it was, to a bicycle frame and then started perfecting that over time and ultimately we'll get the Honda the, the Honda motorbike. So the fact that we have a segmented marketplace makes it possible for countries to start developing something in their own country, which would not be saleable in the in the in the rest of the world, but which suits the domestic demand. And then, as they technologically develop that, they get to the point where they are now acceptable for export, and they have cost and design advantages over their uh, over the European or American rivals. And that's often how countries like Japan uh, started to succeed. You've got to be big enough, of course, to have a domestic market and a wealthy enough domestic market. So if you've got a, you know, a poor country like Burundi where everyone is picking coffee and tea, uh, you know, they're, they're not going to have any money to buy anything at all. So how do you build up a, a domestic industry when there's just not that wealth within the country to support anything at all? Well, there's, there's one case where it, it, it's, it's advantageous, so if not uh, trade, to have regional production uh, systems. And, of course, as you increase the scale of a factory, you reduce the per unit costs. You have higher fixed costs, but you can put more units through. So uh, there's a certain scale at which is feasible, for example, to have an automotive industry. And, uh, I'm again, going and looking at the travesty of Australia's attempts to build an automotive industry where they allowed at one stage five manufacturers inside a country of 15 million people, uh, where the annual rates of annual sales of automobiles were of the order, I think, of 250,000 automobiles per year. And that's the size of one, well, one reasonable size uh, car factory. So you have to, if you have a too, too small a country physically, then you have to you know, regionalise your production so you get to the point where you can have that scale. Yeah. And that, that is... So the problem is you start getting to some of these countries and the idea that you'll you'll work with your neighbours is problematic because there's every chance you might be at war with them or, uh, you know... And, or, and that often goes back to colonialism mm-hmm. again, the Igbo versus the Yibibo. The Muslims, we're seeing this right now playing out yet again, the Muslim versus the Hindus. Uh, I won't go into talking about Israel right now, but a huge part of the divisions we see globally were caused by the... Um, uh, by the colonial powers in the very first place. And England was great at, at divide and rule. So even if uh, if that wasn't an issue and you were able to develop these sort of regional pacts, so c- poor countries uh, work with neighbouring countries and say, well, okay, you know, let's all collectively, let's grow. We've got a population. We need to see that population uh, grow and become wealthier. Where's the money going to come from? Um, the Almost invariably, that money is going to come from investment from overseas or loans from overseas. So that's where the loans come with that attachment for free trade, that requirement for free trade. Uh, foreign investment obviously means you've got foreigners who are sucking out the, the wealth and the profits from whatever enterprise you're building. Um, that is not the way forward. For it's these countries, it's a way it? forward, which is a trap. If you start that way, but as rapidly as possible, build up your own financial sector, your own and your own your own productive capabilities. So that's 
Uh, and the, the, again, my, I come back, if you want to just do sensible stuff on development and trade, then I frequently start with the Atlas of Economic Complexity that Harvard University maintains and their idea of the way you actually expand your productive capabilities when you have a very fragmented industrial structure uh, is to choose industries which are in a, in, a, in a mathematical sense, close to other industries. So, for example, in that sense, a car industry is close to the to the uh, plastics industry and the glass industry uh, because you need plastic and glass for a car. So if you already have plastic and glass manufacturing domestically, you've got some of the inputs to make it feasible. That's a very poor example. There are, my favourite example is, is a bit of a silly one, and that's sailboarding. I don't, know which, where, I don't know which country, you should look this up, which country and which person invented a sailboard, but that's placing, sticking a sail inside a surfboard. Now, to do, make it feasible, to actually turn it from a, you know, a one-off idea into a manufacturing process, it helps to have both sail manufacturing and surfboard manufacturing in the original country. So what, the, what this uh, Atlas of Economic Complexity does is work out mathematically in that sense how close is the sailboard uh, sailboard to and then then say okay look for those gaps and fill those in and that's the way to get rapid industrialization right but that's not good for these poor countries where they've you know they've scarcely got one industry so let's go back to burundi where you know it's got coffee plantations and tea plantations uh, you know and if there was this pact with other coffee producers so that they could perhaps drive their their price up uh, I mean, I, and then you had some investment, it, a domestic uh, investment, so that they could mechanise it, so they could produce coffee more effectively. Then you've got a country that's got a path, haven't you? If you're able to say, well, okay, we're actually going to make it cheaper for us to, uh, to, to, to pick coffee. That's going to free up people. We're going to be selling coffee for a lot more, so we are, as a nation, wealthier. That gives us money uh, that you know to, to pay welfare, but also to invest in other industries that are going to employ these people. All of a sudden, you have a, a, a path out of poverty. Uh, and and if you were a foreign investor, you'd say, "Wow, you're going to have you you're going to sell coffee for more, and you're going to make it cheaper." I'm certainly going to invest in that. But actually, you probably don't want that to happen, do you? They they'd want to make sure it was a domestic investment in their in their own currency, which is why I think you're saying make sure you've got the financial industry, that infrastructure there to support that. Yeah. But surely that's the path, isn't it? That's that that is you know. It's it's one path. It's it's certainly better than going for the IMF restructuring, which is always almost always ends up saying you can't run a budget deficit, and therefore you you slash it, you slash uh, the production of the infrastructure. Uh, not only you slash the provisions for the poor, you slash the development of the infrastructure that might enable them to become unpoor. So yeah, because the because the World Bank is saying you know private financing, which invariably means from outside the country. So the uh, you know the the growth of external investors and then uh, and so, so people are there just as a low cost of labor. So the the whole situation just changes, stays as it stays as it does. Yeah, and I I think size is an important issue as well as you say because uh, if uh, if you have a tiny country like Burundi, uh, then it simply doesn't have the capacity to build up that the technological level needed to support an advanced civilization unless it has. Uh, like the, the weird situation of Singapore, where it was an entree port, port and and the, the the international trade that passed through it was a foundation for putting industries uh, supporting that, and then it grew in that basis. 
so you 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 have to have a regional you know, pact. It, you have to have a regional trading zone, a bit like a a, a European Union for developing nations. Which, which is why the European Union was developed in many ways, because they thought they were competing against America with a population of at the time two hundred million people and a, 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 an ocean to ocean. Uh, market and there they were with the fragmented domestic market. So the the major sensible impetus behind forming the European Union, of course, you know, I don't think Euro was sensible, uh, but the main main thing behind getting the industrial uh, developing it as a single trading block was that they could then be on a comparable scale to America. So then you take well, let's look at the uh, the blueprint for the EU. Then take out obviously the uh, the limitation on how much debt each country can have, but you could um, you could take a lot of the rest. Like for example, if you can self finance and you don't need foreign direct investment, then don't have foreign direct investment because of course lots of countries, lots of developed nations do have limits on foreign direct investment. So, for example, you know, Australia's got the Foreign Investment Review Board. Oh, so. please, don't call that a limitation. That's an encouragement. You know, <laughs> I think the Foreign Investment Review Board has, has, has decided to turn down three or four investments in its lifetime. It's the, great, the greatest joke of neoclassical dominance of a, of a bureaucracy ever, that particular institution. Okay, well, bad example, but lots of, lots, bad. Of, lots of developed nations do say, yes, we don't want foreign direct investment. So, uh, or we're going we're gonna to limit it. In, so I don't know if it's necessarily that easy to buy up agricultural land in Australia, is it? Or is that happening all the time now? Oh, all the time. I mean, the major, uh, uh, I, I think that some of the major uh, cattle stations in the Northern Territory, which are larger than some European countries, are a foreign owned. Um, if you want to get a country with limitations on foreign ownership of land, then Thailand is a better example. Mm. But most countries have, I mean, whether it's land or whether it's investment in, well, obviously China's got uh, uh, foreign direct investment limits. The, the US does as well in certain sectors. Certainly the UK does. So there are limitations. Burundi, though, uh, and I suspect they've been told this, no limits on uh, foreign ownership or limits on uh, on control of businesses within Burundi. It could be 100% foreign owned. No limits whatsoever. So that, well, I've got that gets- it is so damn small. I mean, what is the population of Burundi? You've got the numbers mm. there. No, I haven't actually. <laughs> it's got to be tiny, uh, Burundi yeah, and Rwanda. Um, but yeah, you've, you've got... Uh, it, is, it is so small that they basically the only way they can actually survive would potentially be oh, 11.87 million people. I've got, go. I've got 12. I've got 12.8. Actually- so anyway, but they're okay. about yeah. That's twenty twenty. Yeah. That is a that is a that is not a small, not a tiny population. I mean, you want tiny, you choose Nauru or Fiji or New Zealand. Uh, or New Zealand. That's what the That's twice New Zealand's population. So yeah, you have it, it would be feasible, but it depends upon the capacity to build again the energy, the infrastructure, and so on that they don't currently have. So uh, earlier this year, sixty-seven countries wrote to Antonio Guterres, the uh, Secretary General of the United Nations. Uh, and to the World Bank President, A.J. Banger, uh, calling for action to fix the widening gap between the world's richest and the world's poor. The letter said, we know that high inequality undermines all our social and environmental goals. It corrodes our politics, destroys trust, hamstrings our collective economic prosperity and weakens multilateralism. We also know that without a sharp reduction in inequality, the twin goals of ending poverty and preventing climate breakdown will be in clear conflict. The response from the World Bank was inequality is unacceptably high around the world today uh, because they say the poorest people continue to bear the steepest cost of the COVID-19 pandemic and its aftermath. And they, well, the World Bank says it's committed to tackling inequality in all its forms, the path to ensure no one gets left behind. 
But, you know, ironically, the World Bank might be part of the problem, might not it? Well, in fact, I must say, the, I was knocking the IMF a moment ago. The World Bank is doing some impressive hiring of non-Orthodox economists at the moment. Um, so I'm, 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 so I, there's something the World Bank has learned some lessons by the looks of things out of the last 25 years. The IMF, I think, maybe we're beyond, beyond uh, salvation, but the World Bank seems to be open. And yet up. they still have this preference for, yeah, you know, private financing uh, invariably from outside the country. So, you know, the... the See, again, again, that comes back to international that. money. Well, that comes back to the international monetary system we have because a major part of Keynes's idea for the Bancor was that the what, what became the IMF would have been a clearinghouse for international trade. It would have been... And international trade would have required Bancors to pay uh, for goods and services. And but there was going to be an interest charge on countries running too large a trade surplus, and that was going to finance... Uh, the aid to third world countries to enable them to purchase the goods they need uh, rather than having to use their domestic domestic currency and exports to do it. They'd get it as a grant from the IMF. So, you know, the, the, the effed up world we're in, a lot of it, again, relates back to the decision by the Americans to uh, kick the bank hole out and put the American dollar in the primary place. Yeah, well, that would certainly help, wouldn't it? But it is, unless these countries group together, you are going to have that problem about who pays, even if you had a roadmap out of out of poverty, who pays for it? Uh, other than obviously foreign aid being given, uh, but then a, a lot of that foreign aid obviously is 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 you know sticking plaster stuff, isn't it? How do you? How oh, it's worse. I mean, the foreign aid is often aid for your domestic uh, corporations. You're trying to get the extra exports for them, and you tie it up with the foreign aid. It requires you to buy goods from the country providing the foreign aid. That was one of the when I worked in the overseas aid game for three years of the Freedom from Hunger campaign back in Australia, and that was a regular complaint. Uh, of, of, of recipient nations that the donors were setting them up so they could only buy goods from the donor country. Now, to some extent, that has got a reasonable amount of justification to it because if you are, I mean, it is actually ultimately the physical goods you need. Uh, you, 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 you're getting the foreign currency to buy foreign goods. Um, to some extent, uh, the, the difficulty for the country doing that, of course, is when you when you do pay when you do international trade, international aid rather, then you are using your own currency to do that. You've got to buy American dollars to do it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's another impost on your balance of payments. You, know, you can you can neutralise that by saying we're giving you money to buy our goods, but the goods have to be good enough. Uh, so you know, I, I have mixed feelings about that particular element of foreign international uh, foreign aid, but in general, it's been captured by the domestic industrial wings of most of the donor countries. So the United Nations calls poor countries LCDs, least developed countries. They reckon there's <laughs> forty six of them at the moment. So Africa, it's good that we've got an acronym for them. At least we recognise them as much as you know. Someone's put the effort in as, to create an acronym. Uh, you know, so Angola, Haiti, Cambodia, Somalia, Sudan. Tanzania, loads of them, you know, all the countries. You could probably guess what the 46 are yourself. And many of them are steeped in external debt. That is the problem. I don't know whether you, you know, there's a way you could just write off that external debt so that, uh, and how that how that would be carried. Uh, but it got, it's got worse, of course, because of COVID. And that external debt has got worse. And then, of course, uh, a lot of that debt is in US dollars. And we're seeing the US dollar increasing in value thanks to the, you know, the, the good work of the Federal Reserve. So none of this is good news. I mean, the, the answer from the United Nations has been that, you know, they should be able to delay debt repayments, which they've done for a while. But that hasn't made the inherent problem go away. And how do well, they? Yeah, well, yeah, point on that, first of all. 
Well, I mean, that's, that's Anne Pettifor led the, was one of the main leaders of the campaign for the abolition of debt on the world's poorest 100 countries back of the, the Jubilee 2000 campaign. So it was, it's been done. It, it, and it, and like often when the countries are, when the debt's owed country to country, it's pretty stupid because the country, if, if, you, if you're owed a debt to America in American dollars, the American government can create those dollars anyway. It doesn't need to have them repaid uh, by a third world country. So it's feasible to do that debt abolition and that should be done. And, uh, you know, it, it's... But, but most uh, people would see that as, as that is, uh, that's an expense... They wouldn't see, you know, it's not the, uh, I know that we've talked about lots of times on this podcast how, yes, governments can create money, particularly large countries like America, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and and, we, and that's not really debt, but if you t- treat it as debt, you're issuing bonds and you're, you know, you're repaying that, but if it's owned by the central bank, then that's not really a, a repayment that, you, you you know, you're having to factor in as a, a cost to the country. But most people don't think like that. So they'd say, well, if, if somebody owes us money and we are just writing it off, then we are worse off as a result of that. That's the conventional thinking. And, and, and again, conventional thinking is the problem. Mm. So we have to get over that problem before we can help the poor countries by writing off all their or debt. Or just get out of their way. I mean, this is, mm. uh, again, because you, 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 the comment that uh, uh, you've made about the ingenuity of people in third world countries, because they have to have that ingenuity, the Hajun Chang idea, my bloke making a wooden wooden motorbike. Um, that that. Do you just just take away the restrictions that the West is putting on them by debt obligations and by colonial agreements and by limiting what how they can actually conduct their own national uh, development policies uh, and often also get rid of the crony politics that have been imposed in the same case because that of, often means a large part of you know foreign aid money and and uh, and development money goes into domestic pockets and strengthens hands of of local uh, elites who are genuinely deadly elites. Uh, against the potential for people to free themselves from poverty. Yeah, well, that's the problem as well, isn't it? So, it, whenever you're helping yourself or helping the country, the question is, what what is the, the political? Yeah, exactly. What's the political regime like? Because the United Nations, I mean, there is a lot of sense in in amongst all the many words that have been written, and obviously, there's people who spent a long time thinking about how we fix this problem. So, the United Nations, when they're looking at their LCDs, um, they do ask the question, you know, how do poor countries prevent themselves getting into unmanageable debt? And their advice, some of which makes sense, is that developing one of one of the things is developing and deepening domestic debt markets, domestic debt markets, as well as attracting foreign investments and then managing the balance between the two. So, yeah, I mean, you know, less foreign investment, more domestic debt would be the road to go down, wouldn't it? Yeah, having a having having a domestic financial system, which is a servant rather than a master, that again, I mean, the the one of the things that's, that really scarred Southeast Asia was the Asian financial crisis back in 1997. And that was a huge amount of hot foreign money coming in, driving up prices of real estate in particular, building large amounts of commercial, uh, com- commercial buildings, uh, and then the whole thing collapsing. Uh, when the bubble was unsustainable and a gigantic collapse in the, those economies, particularly Indonesia, also Thailand. So, yeah, you don't want hot money. Uh, you want money which, if it comes in, is doing uh, genuine development rather than speculating on the value of capital assets. It feels like if this is becoming a real issue, 
And, you know, if we really want to, you know, if, if people like Suella Braveman, which is where we started, oh, wants, to, wants to stop. I mean, yeah, the woman is just uh, despicable, isn't she? But if she wants to stop a hurricane of mass migration she, and she wants to go right back to the root cause. And I hate this term economic refugees, because some people, are, you know, if you if you are in completely destitute, you are going to move to wherever you can survive because uh, that's a bit of a human trait, isn't it? That desire to keep living. Uh, then the, the answer is to get back to the root cause of all of this and make some of these countries richer. And we've talked about today some of the ways you do that, which is to, trying to get these countries to work together to develop a uh, like a, a regional pact, a, a regional trading block, which the West could then say, well, OK, we are going to be, uh, you know, we'll help to raise the funds, but we'll also help to engineer a way where this a lot of this can be funded through domestic debt rather than international debt i mean once there's a recognition that that is the way forwards i mean it's if, if it's a policy that makes sense surely it's not inconceivable that that can actually happen uh with current politics i think it is well yeah if donald trump <laughs> yeah. is one of the people who's uh, one of the world leaders for sure yeah and well and well braveman for that matter as well mm. i mean well, it, it, what, be gone what, what i'm what i'm uh, bracing myself for is that people think that climate change is going to cause refugees from the third world to the west what if the first fam- failures of, of harvest occur in the western nations what if there's famine and famine in europe and famine in america uh which way is the trade going to go and in, in that sense in terms of resilience this this is something i, I think about because having lived in thailand for some time and uh, spending some time in Asia in general, uh, the extent to which people have to be resourceful and therefore are, and therefore also are closer to food production, which is by absolutely the vital thing you have to provide. Uh, I've got a feeling, apart from some of the enormous natural catastrophes, unnatural catastrophes that are going to occur, uh, they are closer to the food production, more aware of how it's done, and more likely to cope with some of the uh, c- catastrophes climate will throw at us. People in the West stuck in their office buildings, um, you know, in huge cities with, with who think food is, uh, it wraps itself in the supermarket and plastic. Uh, I think they're more likely to be the ones who want to emigrate somewhere than people in third world countries. They'll be applying for their visa for Burundi any moment now. Indeed. Uh, good talk, Steve. I don't know if we've solved anything, but anyway, useful discussion <laughs> as always. Uh, catch you next week. Okay, bye. The Debunking Economics Podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.